Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. When I first heard from Andrew Blazer, and yes, that is how you say his last name, because I messed it up and, <laughs> and I asked him, I, it was uh, just shortly after Kendall Wessenberg appeared on this podcast about 18 months ago. Kendall is an American skeleton athlete and is aiming for the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing, as is Andrew. They are also both LGBTQ and besties. And when Andrew heard her conversation with me, he reached out, wanted to be out, wanted to you know, be a beacon of inspiration for other LGBTQ athletes, but just wasn't ready yet. Today, he talks with me about why he wasn't ready and why he's ready now. Painted fingernails and all. He also talks about what the journey looks like for him to Beijing. How is he going to get there? And he's got a pretty, he's got a pretty good shot. I only know of three out men who have a real legit shot, um, who are publicly out uh, at competing in the Winter Olympic Games. And he is one of them, along with Gus Kenworthy and Connor McDermott Mustoe. Um, sorry, Connor, I know I butcher your name every time I say it. Um, either way, I, I'm really happy that Andrew, uh, who's been out on social media for a while now, wants to really step out into the light and, and as he takes a shot at the Beijing Olympic Games, be out and proud and part of Team LGBTQ. I hope you enjoy my conversation this week with American athlete, Andrew Blazer. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. And as we were just chit-chatting before, I see the nose ring. I see the painted fingernails. You are all in on this gay thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a long time to get to that point. Um, I grew up Mormon, and it wasn't a, a big self-expression environment that I, I grew up in. And now in my early 30s, I'm kind of stepping more into that and just embracing it. and. It's a little bit freer of a feeling to to walk out and, and do that in the environment that I'm in daily. So, why painted fingernails? I I personally, you know, I gravitate toward a little bit of eyeliner. Um, you know, I I I mostly paint my toenails because my toenails look like, like a disaster. Um, and the 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 polishes looks better. Why your fingernails? So, I don't typically have them painted. And we were just getting ready to leave for a season this year. And I realized that I have a really bad habit of chewing on my nails when I get nervous. And so going into season, I was like, you know, we're just, we're going to embrace this. We're going to go all in. So I went and bought some nail polish and I painted them before we started sliding this season for, for our skeleton season. And so far I haven't been chewing on them. So it's been helping. Have people around you noticed? Yeah, every every day um, someone has come up to me and brought it up. They're just like, oh, I love your nail color. <laughs> and I think it's funny. Um, I didn't really think it through because we, we sand our runners before we race or slide. Uh, and we use acetone to get all of the debris and particles and WD-40 and whatnot off of them. So then I'm being cautious with my nails because we can't wear gloves in the parturme and I'm trying not to have my nails rub off while I'm working on my sleds. So. It's kind of been a, a fun little adventure. They're blue now, is that right? Is that yeah, what they're, 
They're like an electric blue, uh, I think is the color, matte finish. So They're <laughs> matte finish. What? Why electric blue? I debated between blue and green, and I feel like blue was at least closer to Team USA colors. Well, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like you, you, you picked right. I mean, if it's not going to be blue, red or white are other good options. Yeah. Do you feel self-conscious about them? Did you when you first did it? I do in certain environments. So I'm more self-conscious about them in the grocery store or around my family and things like that. Whereas when we're, we're going to sliding, we're at practice, I think it's kind of funny and it's a little bit of shock value um, and just make people turn their head and kind of catch them off guard, which is a little bit of what I do with my jewelry or even my, my race suit is snakeskin. And I'm the only one who has a snakeskin race suit, like a snake print. And so it just catches people off guard and makes them look twice and it makes me laugh a little and keeps it lighthearted for me, so. Yeah, it's so interesting that I, I see more and more men, gay men wearing nail polish and you know, we'll go to a, a pool party in LA or we'll go to a dance party somewhere and I would say, you know, in those crowds, a good, I would say 10 to 15% of guys now are polishing or put, you know, putting nail polish on their, on their fingers, which again, you know, I, uh, I like some eyeliner or like, you know, a little bit, but nail polish is the one thing I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. So I, I had my toenails done in July. My boss or our head coach for the high school that I coach volleyball at, um, she had her wedding ceremony this summer. And my roommate um, is another head coach in the Valley. And she went and we got pedicures and they were like, okay, we're done. And I was like, well, are you gonna paint them? I, I paid, I might as well have them painted. Nobody sees my toes. So it started kind of there and then I went with it. I don't trust myself with eyeliner, so that one won't ever happen. Why not? I don't think I have fine motor skills. <laughs> uh, I'm very much full body gross motor movements. I can manage big movements and, you know, I ran track and I did those kind of things. But if you give me a, a pen or a paper, I have awful handwriting. I just don't, it makes no sense to me. It's like that, what, year four of development as a child just totally lost on me. Well, you're painting your nails. I mean, it, it can look really bad if you don't have some motor skills. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the cleanup process afterwards when I'm like picking up all the little scraps that I kind of missed. I'm, I'm pretty good with my right hand. My left hand is not yeah. a good environment. So. Dude, well, I, have, I wear contact lenses. And so touching my eyes and in and around my eyes is so not a big deal. And so when I'm using the the pencil, you know, it, it, sometimes I hit my eye, like it's just, it's so not a big deal. I have total comfort with that. So for me, it's not a big deal. Yeah. But I, and also my husband doesn't, I love feminine guys. I love masculine guys. I like people in between. I, I just love men, but he doesn't love guys who are super feminine, but the one thing he'll let me do is put eyeliner on. He's like, ooh, that looks really good on you. Okay. So I go with that. I bet you didn't think we'd spend the first five minutes talking about eyeliner and nail polish. It happens. 
we got some skeleton talk in there. <laughs> uh, when we when we last talked, it was April two thousand twenty. I think I had just done my conversation with Kendall Westenberg, um, and you're like, "Hey, you know," or maybe I reached out to you one way or the other. We started chatting. And I feel like in April 2020, if I remember correctly, you're like, yeah, I'd like to talk to you. Not right now, though. What's changed? Um, I think I've just gotten more comfortable with. So a lot of my hold up with stuff is kind of that family side of things. Um, like I said earlier, I, I briefly touched on I grew up in the LDS church. Uh, my family is very active in the LDS church and I think part of it has been almost stifling parts of my own personality to try and make sure that they're always comfortable around me. Um, and as that relationship as a whole has kind of evolved and I've realized how much they really did not care like I thought they would, um, it's allowed me to kind of open up with myself more uh, and be a lot more comfortable even having those conversations that I normally wouldn't have when I know that like, my business is going to be out there, I guess. <laughs> um, just because I've, I've never wanted the, to have uncomfortable conversations with people that it just doesn't feel like it's pertinent information for. Um, but that I guess is the biggest thing that has changed for me as I've gotten a little older and really settled into to me and where I am as an athlete, as a person, as um, a family member, as, as all of those things. I don't know if that makes sense. It, it your whole, yeah, I, I hear this all the time. You know, people, when I have conversations with people about why there aren't more out professional athletes, even in women's sports, because there are plenty of women who are closeted, when, and they're like, oh, you know, it's the environment here and the environment there. But we've proven over and over again that the environment in sports is just not as bad as people think, that, that gay athletes are accepted on a widespread level. What I hear from so many athletes, the answer to the question is family. The, 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 the family that they've known for 22 years, there's some religion thrown in there, you know, grandma's 89, and it's, there's so many different family reasons and and we lose track of the fact when we're talking about gay athletes as this monolith that they're actually individual people with individual backgrounds and individual families and those families mean a lot to them yeah um can definitely see that and having grown up that way i i look back on some of the behavior patterns or things that I did, especially from end of high school through kind of college. I was running track in college, but I was only five and a half hours away from my family and they would come in on the weekends, watch me run, uh, or I would have meets in my hometown. And I just realized how many walls I put up between me and my family in those environments. And I would almost, curb who I would even introduce to my parents I'm afraid that something would slip before I had come out to them and I mean I I didn't actually come out to my parents until I was I think 25 um 
so I was kind of living this double life through all of college where when I was there and I was at college, it was one thing. And then I would go home and it was a very different thing. And, and then I would go back to college and it was just this weird shift. And mm -hmm. there were times I would give myself whiplash just going back and forth between the two because I couldn't really fathom it. And then eventually I was in a relationship with someone and that was kind of the catalyst for me really getting comfortable and, and committing to having that conversation with my parents and him and I had split up over it because I hadn't talked to them. And then the next day I called my family, talked to them and him and I actually never ended up getting back together. So it was a blessing in disguise um, with, with the way that all fell uh, uh, apart. It, kind of tied the rest of my life back together in a really beautiful way. And my family's getting a lot more comfortable with me. Um, it was kind of a weird experience for me. My mom recommended a book. And again, my, my mom is very involved in the LDS church. And the book that she recommended to me was Mama's Boy by Dustin Lance Black. And he had been raised in the LDS church and is telling this story in this memoir of his life and then to have that recommended for my mom was, I mean, that was very recent. We're talking the last two months. She bought me a copy of it. And I was like, this feels like a weird book to get from my mom with, with that relationship. But it's also one of those moments where I'm realizing that they're actually more comfortable with it than I'm giving them credit for. And we hear that over and over again. And it's one of the things that I just, I wish I could show more athletes because that's the world that we live in and coaches just the widespread acceptance that people find even from their families but also knowing you know I've been with my husband for 18 and a half years we've been together for 18 and a half years that's a long time there are athletes that we write about that aren't even that old I've never met his dad his dad refuses to meet me 18 years later and he refuses to meet me, be in the same room as me. He, he refused to even talk about me as the, trying to almost like pretend that his son isn't gay. So, you know, I'm, people say that I'm, you know, all, all Pollyanna and I, you know, want to, you know, just kind of like wash aside the problems that people have. Um, I've had a problem in my personal life regarding this for 18 and a half years. So I'm not trying to be Pollyanna. I just see, I mean, this is a rare case today, very rare where there is this kind of an issue. And, and so, you know, it doesn't surprise me that your parents would be able to come around. They've known you're gay for how long? I just had to do math of how old I am. So seven, seven years? Seven years. That right? Seven years later, and your mom is sending you books about being a gay Mormon and and finding acceptance that's how does it make you feel uh honestly it's I think because I was so closed off for so long it's a it was more shocking that she recommended that and that she had read it but I also it kind of warmed my heart a little bit because I, I was like oh my mom is trying and she's she understands that we may not see eye to eye on everything, but that it's okay for, for that to be the case. We're not ever going to see eye to eye with one person 
completely on every issue. And it especially, I think because that book is talking so much about his relationship with his mom, and there are times when I kind of have that, I am almost, I take the kind of protector role um, in a lot of situations. And so when, or the fix it, I guess. So when like my mom and one of my siblings is arguing, I'm trying to stop it. And I don't really like seeing that because I don't like the way, especially with family. And I think we get so malicious with family because you know they're still your family at the end of the day. And so with like friendships, when you get malicious in an argument like that, it can end that, but there's still something tying you to family. And so I, my family argues, I tell people we argue as a form of communication. I have a lot of people who didn't understand it. And that's just like, we'll go to war over board games. That's, oh boy. that's us. Um, so when we kind of step back and, and having her do all of that, it, it just made me feel a lot more comfortable with my mom and kind of tying, like I said earlier, those, those two different hats that I was wearing all the time together, um, which just made me feel like I was in a much safer environment to be more authentic to me. A lot of these the winter sports, skeleton and bobsled and skiing. I, I find that there's a lot, there are a lot of Mormon athletes in those sports, in part because they often come from Idaho and Utah. And do you, do you find that is Mormonism coming relatively common in your sport? Um, I wouldn't say that it is necessarily in the sport that I am in. Um, I would see it a lot with like skiing, uh, any of those kind of environments and the ones that you grow up in. Um, we have an ongoing joke with, with bobsled and skeleton primarily that we're a bunch of second chance athletes or we're the island of misfit athletes. Mm -hmm. And we all had a collegiate career in another sport and then found sliding. So, you know, Kendall had played soccer and I ran track. A lot of my teammates ran track. The bobsled guys, we pull a lot from football or lacrosse and different things that, that they come from. Whereas with skiing, especially, I feel like there's such a hub for that in the Utah and Idaho area. I mean, the first ski lift in the world in modern skiing was in Sun Valley, Idaho. And Southern Idaho has a very high LDS population. So those kind of, you know, Altas down the road in Utah, they were the second one. If, I, if I'm understanding that correctly, I might be wrong, but they were really close. I won't fact check you, it's fine. Yeah, no, I, I fact check myself, I'm weird. Um, so I think we are, we're exposed to it a lot though, because we do spend a lot of time in Utah. And and a lot of people who are either working at the track or people who are giving you a ride to or from the airport in an Uber or whatever it is, like you, you see it a lot and you're exposed to it. I don't necessarily think that we have a ton who grow up in it with bobsled. I can't say the same for luge because they do start a lot younger than we do. And they have a development club in, in Utah that'll start with kids that are 10 years old as opposed to 18, 20, 25, so... It, and it, it's funny that you mentioned that you, you a lot of you come from other sports because 
I know you, you, you ran track at, at Idaho and I'm trying to remember, I, for some reason I have pole vault in my head, but I, I, I what, what was the event that you did? So I was a decathlete. Um, okay. Went, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I went to school my freshman year at the university of Louisville in Kentucky. And then I took a semester off and transferred back to the university of Idaho. And I, I transferred in a technically semester of my sophomore year. Uh, and I was a decathlete and hurdler. All <laughs> came a little later. So I had done some competitive cheerleading and I learned and knew how to tumble, which a lot of people try and learn that or are pulled from a gymnastics background in pole vault. And sure. I actually coach pole vaults at a high school now, but I had coached vaults and decathlon mm -hmm. at Utah State uh, my first year after college. So how do you get from the decathlon at Idaho to a sport that the vast majority of Americans, they've never heard of it despite the Winter Olympics, and they certainly can't describe it to you. So I had a teammate who... By the way, the sport is skeleton. <laughs> so this is where this gets kind of weird. I was at the University of Idaho, and Sam Michener, who was on the 2018 Olympic team for bobsled, was my teammate up until my senior year. He graduated one year ahead of me. And then he was a graduate assistant in the 2011-2012, which was my, my fifth year of college. And he had been working with a psychology doctoral candidate that we just called Trin. He was from Trinidad and Tobago, and he had done bobsled stuff for Trinidad and Tobago. And he suggested to Sam that he try bobsled. For me, it was a, a joke with my family that I was like, what was I gonna do when track was done? I'm a year, year and a half younger than Ashton Eaton. I didn't have a future in the decathlon. And I knew that. And my sister and I were just joking. I was like, well, doesn't every retired track athlete do bobsled? And I called the coaches and it was right after I'd started coaching at Utah State. So I called the coaches back in New York. Like, yeah, come take a combine. We'll keep an eye out for you. And I was like, great. I show up. Sam's there. So I'm a little comfortable because I'm with someone who I've known for four years. We take our combine. They invite us back to a push championship in New York for bobsled. And I get there and I am six foot three, six foot four and 180 pounds. Mm -hmm. If you've ever seen a bobsled guy, they don't look like me, but my numbers were pretty all right in the, the combine tests. So they recommended I try skeleton. I tried it. I hated it. I'm not a thrill seeker. I don't like being in control of stuff. When it comes to a lot of speed, it freaks me out, which is so weird that my journey has gone this far now but I actually did it for a year and a half and then went back to bobsledding for a year and a half and then sold all of my stuff, spent eight months in Kentucky just resetting and then bought a new sled on a whim, drove to Canada and then moved to Utah uh, and got good kind of overnight. Um, so I, I think that second day on on the sled I had purchased 
I took over a second and a half off of my time on that track and everyone's like, what just happened? So I have kind of a roundabout way of getting there through bobsled track, this joke with my sister, a sports psychologist who suggested it, and it all just came together into the last eight years of my life. <laughs> so we, we got here. It just took a while. So skeleton, you are flying down this sheet of ice on a baking sheet with, with, uh, on skis, essentially, um, head first, do they call it skeleton because so many people die in the, like, <laughs> I mean, it looks like the most scariest, most thrilling, most dangerous sport in the world. So it evolved out of Cresta and Cresta is done in St. Moritz, Switzerland. It's this elite club of very well-to-do people in Switzerland where they built the first ice track and they do it every year. They go out and they build this out of snow. It evolved out of that into bobsledding and then they developed skeleton as a separate sport to try and develop bobsled pilots at a younger age hmm. is kind of the way that it came about. Now the name, everyone else calls it tobogganing. We call it skeleton in English. Um, because you die. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's competitive sledding. But no, it, it's the saddle so the part that comes off of the sled that goes around our rib cage has little bars that look like ribs so they said that the sled looks like a skeleton oh, and it just yeah. kind of stuck um yeah i don't think anyone's died in a while i can't <laughs> like it. morbid. i'd be the first that's pretty, uh, that's pretty rough we could start you on do you a, love it i mean do you love it do you love it or or are you just like i'm good at it so i'm just gonna do it that's a really tough question so yes i love it it was a long journey to get there mm. we have another kind of joke on our team about how i sell my equipment more often than anyone and i like i quit every other day um <laughs> And I'm just like, I'm done. I'm over this. I don't like the sport, which is just kind of the highs and lows of sport, right? Um, so I go through these almost mood swings with my skeleton career. And it took me a long time to embrace the speed and lack of actual control that I have with it. Um, I really fell into skeleton so after I had gone back to bobsled, but then I, when I decided to take skeleton seriously was when my most significant relationship ended and it wasn't a good relationship. That was the one that kind of pushed me into coming out to my family. And when I would go to the track, I, I had two minutes a day on the ice that I couldn't think about anything else. And so it was my escape from the real world was this two minutes of quiet on my sled that I could take everything inside of me and just be focused on sliding. And it wasn't until I did that, that I a was able to let go of this 
tumultuous end of a relationship, but also that I wasn't able to just embrace sliding for what it was and everything it was going to bring into my life. So now if you ask me, yes, I love it. I still have really bad nerves. I'm notorious for throwing up before track events. Like I have really tough Where? I just find a garbage can. I, I, I know. I have stories upon stories of that. And in the decathlon, that's like 10 times a day. Not really, just five. But several times before track events. And that kind of carried over to skeleton when I first started. And now I'm in a much better place with it where um, it, it allows me to not, I don't know how I want to phrase this. It's vomit. Yeah, it, it just, I'm not inhibited by the fear of it anymore. And I think the year that I went on, on World Cup with Team USA, I took a lot of crashes in races. I took a lot of really hard hits. I had a lot of bruising. And now those things don't scare me, but because they don't scare me, I'm able to actually execute sliding to a point that I don't have them anymore. So that, that kind of growth for me as a person was, was fun to go through and watch. I have scars. I mean, got multiple ones that I should have had stitches that I, I just couldn't because they were too wide and you learn and you fall in love with it. I, I get excited to slide now. What stands now between you and the Olympic Games? So the there's a sled allotment. Um, I know a lot of qualifications for certain events have changed um, with like, we'll use beach volleyball as an example in the summer games you can only have two teams entered from the US. In Skeleton, we can have up to three individuals entered, but we have to earn a certain allotment based off of our international ranking. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, there are we have a handful of, of pretty good sliders and some younger ones coming up in the US program. Um, and there is a teammate of mine, super great guy, decided to come out of retirement. And then there's myself and, and one that I started with who are kind of in that top three. And we are most likely in a position to send two. So from here in, it, it, the biggest obstacle is going to be me staying level-headed and racing well. And I started off my season last week with some really good races um, in a development. They were on North America's Cup, so I had uh, two silver medals there. And then we race for national team races. We have two of them this weekend again in Whistler, um, which is actually the fastest track in the world. Mm. One of the first ones I went to, so I had this weird checkered relationship because my first exposure, I was super nervous. Um, and now I really embrace it and I have a lot of fun here. With, with qualification, what's standing between me and getting there is my own execution of races. And as long as I stay on track and execute the way that I can, I am in a very, very good position to qualify. So it's a, it's a two-step process. It's, it's number one, do the Americans get two or three sleds? And number two, um, do you get one of those sleds? Yeah. Uh, 
part two, is it a strict point system or is it, you know, like in figure skating, it's, they just pick. So for our qualification and our criteria, it is, it's written with a couple of ifs. So if we have one sled, it is the top ranked international point. If we have two, it is the top two international points. If we qualify a third, that third sled is what they would be terming discretionary. Mm. So if we qualify a third sled, they technically can send who meets the discretion criteria. And there's like five points of criteria that they can put that up against. So I'm out. They can't pick me, but they no. could pick you. But they could pick me. They could pick my teammates. You know, I've got two guys that I'm staying with in this house at our races that they could pick either one of them. Um, they, you do have to have another kind of term. They call it a five, three, two. So you have to have raced five races on three tracks in the last 24 months or an eight, three, two for the Olympics. So you have to have eight races. It's, it's complicated. It's convoluted. And I don't even understand all of it. What I know about qualifying is I need to show up and I need to do well. <laughs> That's it. Just keep it simple and, and go from there. We, last June, this past June, um, we at Outsports decided that we wanted to really um, shift how everyone watched the Olympics. We wanted to create a fictional team LGBTQ and pack it with as many out athletes as we possibly could. And we first published our list of out athletes in Tokyo it was 121, ended at 186, 186 out athletes at the Olympics, which I know you saw, like the entire world saw, which is so cool. What would it mean to you to, in Beijing, be part of Team LGBTQ? I, I mean, that would be incredible. Um, I think it would mean a lot just knowing, and this this might be a little off topic, but knowing that I come from somewhere that I am able to put my name on that list. Um, I know a lot of track athletes who have come from Nigeria, from different like African nations, places that you you can't do that, that it's still by law legally there will be repercussions. And so to even have the opportunity to go represent myself, my country and be true to me and have that out there and hopefully kind of pave the way for some other 15 year old kid to wake up and see that it's okay. It's okay to be you. And if people aren't okay with that, they're not the people that you really want to bring into your life. And so for me, I think that's the part that would mean the most to me. Yes, having the Olympic credential and being able to say that I did that and made it to this pinnacle would be awesome. But to be able to do that and feel like I was the most authentic version of myself yeah. would kind of just be the best part of my skeleton career. Well, you, right now you're one of only three men gay men who i know of who uh have a shot at the olympics so it's a small group <laughs> there's you there's connor mcdermott bestowee who 
and Gus Kenworthy. That's it. So I know there are more out there. And if you can you can tell me who they are when we uh, end the score recording, but <laughs> be, we need as many men as we can get. Uh, yeah, I I might sound awful. I feel like there's got to be some in in other sports. That well, are figure skating. There were three last time. They've all retired. So oh, yeah, I don't know. Who's Adam uh, Yorick and and Eric are all out of uh, competition. So. Um, we'll be digging for more um and i know that kendall will is uh aiming for a spot as well so hopefully we'll uh, well yeah and i guess that's uh, like my last question what did it mean to you and kendall are good friends support each other you're both lgbtq would like would it be extra special to go with her yeah um so Kendall and I actually started, she was in my first, we call it driving school. The first time that I ever got on a skeleton sled, you take a week, you start lower down on the track. They just put you on the sled and you go. And Kendall has, she was there for that with me in Park City. I think she had done one a couple years, a year or two earlier in Lake Placid. But really from when we started full-time, this is like what we're pursuing we've been there and then she got really good really fast i took that kind of roundabout way to get there so to be able to have that experience with her would be awesome her and um her fiance like i sometimes just have a bad day and i'll facetime her fiance and i'm just like i just need a moment away from skeleton world um and so to share that experience with her i think would be really fun especially if you know, anything were to change and I decide that I don't want to keep going for another four years of this, it would be cool to have that having start together and then finish together and then kind of choose where we want to go from there. So she's, she's a lifelong friend for me at this point and she's been in my life for the last eight years. So to have that and, and that total experience would be cool. Andrew, thank you for taking the time away from a, a, a busy, exhausting practice schedule, competition schedule, and we'll be rooting for you. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'll need all the help I can get. You can find Andrew Blazer mostly on Instagram. It's at Andrew Blazer, B-L-A-S-E-R. There's also a GoFundMe for Andrew. You know, a lot of these Olympic hopefuls money from the Nikes and Coca-Colas of the world doesn't exactly come pouring in. So if you have the ability to support Andrew, please track down his GoFundMe on the Outsports story on the website or in these show notes. Uh, Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more from Five Rings to Rule Them All.